Thank you, Deborah and Sam. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful for our college students. We're glad you're here. We're we're privileged to be able to be your home away from home while you're here going to uh, various universities. So thank you for worshiping with us. Well, good morning. My name is Mark Irving. I serve as one of the pastors here. And we are just launching a new four-week service. We, we started it last week, so we're actually almost half. Well, after today, we'll be halfway through it. But uh, we're doing a, a four-week service series on the topic of our values. We're, we're entitling it Identity. And we've titled it that because it's about our DNA as a church, what we're, what we're about, what makes us tick. And our identity is summed up in the tagline that, that Sam just mentioned for us a little bit ago. We're a gospel-centered church in the city, for the city, seeking a city above. Gospel-centered points to our priority in the city, highlights our place. For the city underscores our posture, and seeking a city above emphasizes our ultimate purpose. And as I said last week, this, this four-part identity statement is more than just a tagline. It forms the outline for our 12 values that we have uh, chosen as a church body. Last week, we looked at the three values that come underneath the heading gospel-centered. And this week, we come to the next little snippet of that phrase, in the city. And we'd like to look at the three values that we have placed underneath that heading. Presence, relationship, and diversity. Each of these three things matter deeply to us as a church. And here's how we've summed them up. First of all, presence matters. If you would, say this out loud with me. We desire to join Jesus on mission right where we are, recognizing that the gospel that has come to us is meant to flow through us. Matthew 5.14 states that we are the light of the world. Those of us who have, have put our faith in Jesus, chosen to follow him, we're the light of the world. We're meant to be gospel conduits, not gospel containers. As Jesus followers, we have the privilege of being the living proof of a loving God everywhere we go, where we live, work, learn, and play. This value of presence is largely where, we'll be fo- where we will be focusing our time together this morning. But secondly, relationship matters. Say this value out loud with me as well. Here we go. We want to make the people in our community more important than our programs. When you look at Jesus through the Gospels, the most important person was who? The person that was right in front of him. And when he made disciples, he didn't keep them at an arm's length. No, he said he chose 12 to be with him, Mark chapter 3.14 says. He shared his life with them. He invited them into deep community and relationship. So in fulfilling our mission to make disciples here at Fellowship Nashville, we will emphasize and value relationships because we understand that programs don't make disciples, but people do in the context of deep, loving, and rich relationship. All right, that brings us to our third value that we've put underneath this heading in the city, and that's this diversity matter. Say this out loud with me. Here we go. We seek to be multi-generational and multicultural, emphasizing unity not uniformity. You know, Nashville, where God has placed us, is a very diverse city. It really is. 
And if we skip ahead in our Bibles and look at the last book, the book of Revelation, we see a, a little bit of a picture of what's coming, what we can expect when King Jesus is on the throne on earth again. And what we see there is a multicultural worship service, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered around the throne giving praise to King Jesus. And we, we desire here at Fellowship Nashville just to be a small reflection of that. We want to unfog the glass for people about what's coming when diverse people dwell in unity together, emphasizing unity, not necessarily uniformity. We won't all have the same viewpoints. We all, won't all have, um, look alike and have the same ideas about stuff, but we can have a deep and abiding unity because of Jesus Christ. And just like last week, we don't have time to fully unpack all three of these values that we've crammed underneath the heading in the city, but I would like to hone in on the first one, that of presence, being a faithful presence where God has put us here in Nashville. And, and I want to reintroduce a word that I talked about about three and a half years ago in a sermon. It's a Greek word. And that word is this. We've already heard it said a couple times this morning, oikos. Oikos. Say that out loud, oikos. There, you know some Greek. Good. Um, now, I can guess where many of your minds went um, right after you saw this word on the screen. Mmm, tasty. Hope you brought your spoon. But before this Greek word was co-opted by a marketing company um, for, that was hired by a yogurt company... <laughs> It was used by biblical authors to convey an idea, to convey uh, an important concept related to our value of being a faithful presence where we live, work, learn, and play here in our city. And since probably half of you weren't here in 2018 when I preached on this concept, I thought now would be a good time to revisit that, take some elements of that sermon that I preached three and a half years ago, rewarm them, and reserve them up to you this morning. So that you know what we mean when we toss about this word oikos at Fellowship Nashville, okay? But before we open God's word together this morning, let's talk to the author together, shall we? Asking him to give us insight into his word. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time together as, as uh, Jesus followers to worship you. Lord, if there are those among us that are, are here just kind of kicking the tires on faith and wondering what this is all about, I pray that they would feel welcome and loved and accepted this morning. We're grateful for them. Father, we want to pause to thank you for your word, for the Bible. Because in it we find how you, what you want for us and from us. In it we see your glorious and amazing promises to us in Jesus Christ. And we are grateful for it. So teach us this morning what you would teach us by, by your word and your spirit as we, we open up um, to various passages and look at this concept of oikos. Use me in my inadequacy, in spite of myself, to, to speak and to have clarity of thought as I present uh, your word this morning. We love you, Lord. Amen. We brought a Bible today. Go ahead and open it up to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at several passages through this book to start off with. Um, and as we read, the, the words will also be up on the screen behind me, so if you don't want to flip through your Bibles really fast, you can just follow along on the screen. But as we read, I, I have an assignment for you. 
You've got to pay attention. So no falling asleep during this part. You can fall asleep later. But during this part, I want you to listen for a repeated concept or phrase or just look for where I put it in bold on the screen, okay? Here it goes. Acts chapter 11, verses 11 through 14. This is Peter retelling the account of his encounter with a man named Cornelius. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 11, we read this. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved and all your household. Skip ahead to Acts chapter 16. Um, This is in the city of Philippi on Paul's second missionary journey. Verse 13 of chapter 16. And on the Sabbath day, we, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, went outside outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to a woman who had, spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she encouraged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. A little bit later in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas get thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. Um, Actually, it was think for casting a demon out of a, a, a woman, and, and um, that caused a stir, because that woman would predict the future for people, and when the demon left, she wasn't able to do that anymore, so the, the owners complained and got them thrown into jail, and so they're in jail in Philippi. Um, it's midnight, and then there's a, they're, they're singing hymns and things like that. The jailer probably thought they were weird, and, and there's this earthquake, and all the jail doors swing open, and their shackles fall off. And the jailer, who's probably sleeping, gets woken up, runs to the jail, notices all the doors open, and fears the worst, thinks, okay, I've lost all the prisoners, and my boss is going to kill me, literally, literally. And so he's about to commit suicide when Paul says to him, hey, stop, stop, don't. We're all here. We're all here. None of us have left. And then he falls down on his knees, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And this is the response in verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And they took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. A couple chapters later in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, we read this. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Okay, you guys are an intelligent bunch. What word was or concept was repeated over and over and over and over again in those passages? Household. Good. Cornelius is saved in Acts chapter 11, and his household, Lydia, comes to faith and is baptized along with the rest of her household. The Philippian jailer puts his faith in Jesus along with his household, and they rejoice. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, believes together with his entire household. Now, I know you aren't Greek scholars. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, so do you have a conjecture about the Greek word that's behind our English translation of household? 
oikos. Good, oikos. This term is, this Greek word is used quite often throughout the book of Acts. And, and we see this pattern that when the gospel comes to someone, there seems to be a consistency that it flows through them to the people around them. The gospel extends to their household as well. Now, when you think of the English word household, what do you think of? If you're like me, and I know I am, I typically think of the nuclear family, okay, a basic social unit consisting of parents and kids, a family pet or two, you know, what's often portrayed in stick figure form on the back of minivans or SUVs and those, those little bumper sticker things, okay? That's what I think of when I think of the word household. That's what we often think of as Americans when we hear that. And that's why I'm going to suggest to you this morning that that's probably a poor translation for this Greek word in many cases. Sometimes it's accurate, but sometimes it's not. Well, why might it be a poor translation? I'm glad you asked. To answer that question, let's take a quick journey together through the Gospels. A couple of key passages in the Gospels that I want to take you to where the word oikos pops up as well. First one is Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. So you want to flip in your Bibles over to that chapter in Mark. Jesus encounters a homeless man there who is possessed by a legion of demons. He's pretty erratic in his behavior and uncontrollable. And he probably, because of that, became quite infamous in that region. Because when people tried to chain him and control him, he would just break the chains with superhuman strength. He was undoubtedly labeled by society as crazy and extremely dangerous. And Mark tells us that he lived among the tombs, likely um, in a... um, kind of a shallow cave-like things that were carved out of the side of the hillside on this slope that goes down to the Sea of Galilee. When I went on um, a Holy Land tour a few years ago, we got to actually visit that exact site. It's the only place where the hillside of, of the Golan Heights slopes down to the Sea of Galilee. And guess what you have there? You have these kind of shallow caves dug out of, of the, the hillside there. Um, very, very likely, probably 99% chance this is exactly where this miracle happened. Anyway, um, he was completely ostracized and cut off from society. And this demoniac's encounter with Jesus was quite dramatic. Jesus casts the demons out of him, and he sends the demons where, if you're familiar with the story? Where does he send the demons? He, he sends them into a herd of pigs, which then go galloping. Do pigs gallop? I don't know. They, they went running, waddling. I don't know. They went down the hillside and jumped into the lake and drowned. Okay, so pretty, pretty dramatic scene, the original Bay of Pigs. Um, let's pick up the story in Mark chapter 5, verse 11. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Take me with you, Jesus, please. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people. Literally, go to your oikos in Greek. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go to your oikos and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. But time out, Jesus. This guy's homeless. He lived where? 
among the tombs. He wandered around the mountains, totally out of his mind, cutting himself with rocks. He's completely estranged from his family, totally cut off from any friendships that he may have once had. And probably every mother in that entire region would warn their kids, don't you go anywhere, don't you dare go anywhere near that cemetery by the lake because that's where that crazy man lives. This guy is isolated, alone, totally cut off from society, but Jesus tells him to go to his oikos, his household, if we are being consistent in our translation. But he has no household. If Jesus means the people that he lives with in the cemetery, that's a really quiet neighborhood, okay? People are just dying to get in there. So Jesus obviously wasn't referring to that because you can't proclaim something to dead people, can you? So what does oikos mean here? Well, let's look at the next verse. Mark chapter 5, verse 20. So the man went away and began to tell in where? The Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Decapolis, deca meaning 10, polis meaning city. So this is 10 largely Gentile cities on the east side of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. That's in modern day Syria and Jordan. 10 cities. That's where he went when Jesus told him to go to his oikos. How many people knew about this guy? How far had his reputation spread? Apparently it spread quite a ways. The whole region knew about him, including 10 cities, the Decapolis. So 10 cities are part of this man's oikos. Let me show you one other very significant place where this Greek word pops up in the Gospels. If you grew up in church or went to Sunday school when you were a kid, you are most likely familiar with this story. You probably learned a song about it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wants. Okay, if you missed out on that as a kid, that's okay. You're not missing too much, but it's a cool song. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Let's read this story. He entered Jericho, that's Jesus, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, oikos, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So, so what does Jesus mean when he says that salvation has come to Zacchaeus' oikos? Does he mean his household? Like, did Zacchaeus have a family? He might have. And if that's the case, it certainly meant that. But in the context, what seems to be in view here, based on what Zacchaeus has just said, 
Zacchaeus is oikos, salvation coming to his oikos are the poor in the community that he's going to give away his possessions and the people that he's defrauded in his tax jurisdiction where he's going to show up with a wad of cash and go, here's four times the amount I stole from you. And imagine you just put yourself in the sandal of one of those people. Zacchaeus knocks on your door, you open it and go, oh no, I shouldn't have opened the door, it's Zacchaeus again. And instead of wanting to take your money, he hands you a bunch of coins or whatever the currency was in that day and says, here's four times the amount I took from you. What are you going to ask him? Why? (laughs) And what's Zacchaeus going to tell them or tell you? He's going to tell you about his encounter with Jesus. And the good news about Jesus is going to spread. Today, salvation has come to this oikos. So oikos seems to have a broader meaning in many cases than what we typically think of in our culture when we hear the word household. It goes beyond, includes, but goes, seems to go beyond the nuclear family. So if you were tasked with translating the Bible into English from Greek, what English word or phrase might you choose to use in these instances where it seems to have a broader meaning? If I were creating my own version, the MIV, Mark Irving version of the Bible, probably the best translation that I would come up, that I can come up with is this. Say this out loud with me. Sphere of influence. Sphere of influence. In the Bible, not only is a person's family in the oikos, it's their business relationships, like Lydia had as the seller of purple. It's the workers in the field. It's the the people in Zacchaeus' tax jurisdiction. It's the 10 cities that know of the reputation of this crazy man down by the lake. It's all the people that a person's life has touched or touches on a regular basis. As we look at the usage of this term oikos throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts, it seems that it's God's intention that when the gospel comes to someone, it's meant to flow through that person to their oikos the unique sphere of influence. So let me ask the um, $10 million question. So what? So what? What does this mean for us today? It might be easy to dismiss this as just cultural and say, you know, that was then, this is now. Back then there was a communal society. There was that solidarity of community um, in, in households and and. and um, in neighborhoods, and the only reason you see whole households coming to faith, whole spheres of influencing, influence, putting their faith in Jesus, is because of that communal um, aspect of culture that you had back then. But we live in a much more individualistic culture, so this concept does not apply to us. But have you ever stopped to think that our rugged American individualism might not be a good thing? It might not be God's best for us. Could it be that God still intends to multiply the gospel through us as 21st century disciples? That the good news that has come to us is meant to flow through us to our unique spheres of influence, to our families, excuse me, to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our acquaintances. That we're meant to be gospel conduits, not gospel containers. That we're blessed to be a blessing. That God is doing his work of gospel renewal in us because he intends to do his work of gospel renewal through us. And I'm quite confident that this is still God's intention. Jesus' purpose for his disciples is not just to create new life in us, but to multiply new life 
through us. How can I be so confident? Well, what did Jesus say to his original disciples? What did he, how did he first call them? Many of them were fishermen, and when he showed up on the beach, he walked up to him and said, come follow me. And, and what? Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to send you after people with a message. Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus did not say, come follow me, and I will teach you how to live therapeutically well-adjusted lives. He didn't say, come follow me, and I'll teach you how to be good, moral, upstanding citizens. He didn't say, come follow me, and I will teach you how to be happy and fulfilled. Now, now following Jesus sometimes comes with those benefits, but those are byproducts of following Jesus at best. They're not the main call. The primary calling of Jesus is to join him on his redemptive mission in the world, to become fishers of men, to spread the gospel that we talked about last week to the people in our oikos, the people in our spheres of influence. You know, the life purpose of Jesus was stated quite clearly there at the end of the Zacchaeus passage. Did you, did you catch it? We read it, but it's easy to skip. Right there in that last verse of that passage, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we read this. For the Son of Man came to what? Yeah, to seek and save the lost. That, that's a pretty direct purpose statement of Jesus, isn't it? He's laying down his cards quite clearly. This is what I'm about. And if you follow someone, what does that mean? It means you take on the purpose of that person. You take on that, purpose, that person's agenda. You don't set the agenda. No, the person you're following sets the agenda. What's the agenda of Jesus? To seek and save the lost. And so if we're following Jesus... His priority is quite clear. What must then become our priority as followers? To seek and save the lost. You know, a mentor of mine would repeatedly say, Mark, if you're not fishing, you're not following. My friends, Jesus did not call us to simply believe in him, be forgiven of our sins, gather to become better people, and get trapped in an endless cycle of Bible studies and worship services until we die. No, he called us to himself so that we might all become fishers of men in our unique spheres of influence, taking the gospel with us each and every day, becoming the living proof of a loving God where we live, work, learn, and play. Well, it's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus commissioned his original disciples to go out with the gospel message, which leads me to a question. Why are there still a bunch of people out there that have never heard the gospel? Now, before you start feeling guilty as a result of that question, as a Christ follower, let me take you off the hook and put myself on it. Somewhere along the way, guys like me, people who get paid to be in vocational ministry, to lead churches, started measuring success by our seating capacity rather than our sending capacity. Here's how that plays out. Whenever I go to a pastor's conference, there's questions that pastors usually ask each other. And about the third question is, is this. So, how big is your church? And our identity as pastors can get easily wrapped up in how many people are coming to listen to us pontificate on a Sunday morning. 
And when this happens, we, we start using the wrong yardstick to measure success. We begin measuring success by how many people we are hurting into worship services on Sunday mornings. We redefine success away from the original disciple-making mission that Jesus intended to filling seats, building attendance, getting lots of square footage in our buildings. So instead of building a movement of people who are going out with the gospel where they live, work, learn, and play, we define success by moving people into a building. We start telling our people to bring their friends to church services so that the professionals can take it from there. Rather than equipping our people to go and be the church where they live, work, learn, and play. Be the church in their oikos, their sphere of influence. Reaching family, friends, acquaintances, neighbors, co-workers, with the gospel. Do you see the difference? Two very different operating systems. And unfortunately, the operating system of most churches in America is just what I described. Get people, keep people. Get them involved in programs. The fake commission, as I've heard it called. Go into all the world and make worship attenders, baptizing them in the name of small groups and teaching them to volunteer once or twice a month. But we're not called to the fake commission, we're called to the great commission to make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. All that we've done with the get people, keep people method over the, over the past century here in the American church is to lose market share. Each year, churches all over this country spend millions of dollars on marketing, trying to get people to come into the church building to experience a worship service. But sociologists tell us that in America, fewer and fewer and fewer people are darkening the doors of a church building. It's now less than 20% in our culture. But do you know that nearly 100% of the people in our culture experience the church each and every week? How, you might ask. Well, because the church, you and I, the people, go out Monday through Saturday, Sunday afternoons. We go out from these gatherings, and we rub shoulders with coworkers, neighbors, the the. Um, cashier that's checking us out at the grocery stand. Our little church of about 200 people each week rubs shoulders with well over 2,000. And there's churches all over our city, and each of them go out and rub shoulders. I would say close to 100% of Nashville, there's probably some pockets where this isn't the case, maybe in immigrant communities and things like that. But the majority of our city experiences the church each and every week. They just don't come to a church building. So so when I say that we are a gospel-centered church in the city, yes, that speaks to our location. We do meet in a city. But more than that, it speaks to our faithful presence with the gospel in our location, where we live, work, learn, and play. It means that we want to be about joining Jesus on mission with the gospel in our oikos. So how do we do that? 
How do we join Jesus on mission in our oikos? You should have found that piece of paper on your seat this morning, and if you didn't, um, just look for one on an empty chair afterwards and grab it. But go ahead and take that sheet out right now. It has a little house on it and, and four different categories there to think through. We'll give you a chance to fill this out in a minute. But on the bottom of this sheet is a more specific definition of oikos that we've used in the past here at Fellowship Nashville. We've stated it this way. Your oikos is the 8 to 15 people that God has supernaturally and strategically placed in your life for the sake of the gospel. Would you say that out loud with me? The 8 to 15 people that God has supernaturally and strategically placed in your life for the sake of the gospel. These are the people on the front burners of your life that you rub shoulders with week in, week out. Family members, co-workers, friends, acquaintances, neighbors. Now, what does it look like to live on mission among your oikos? I'd like to encourage you to adopt three practices three practices. Those are also listed on the bottom of that sheet, three words, pray, invest, invite. I want to challenge you, pray daily, invest weekly, invite monthly. Pray daily. Pray daily. God is already at work in your oikos. He's already at work in your sphere of influence. The question is whether or not you're tuned in to what he's doing. Daily prayer for the people in your oikos is how you can align yourself with God's purposes in the world. You'll start noticing things. If you're praying for somebody, it's very much likely that you will start noticing them more. You'll probably start engaging them more. Somebody wise once says that evangelism or um, telling people about Jesus is more talking with God about people than it is talking with people about God. It's the gospel that has the power to save people. It's not your well-formed arguments or how you present things. But God still chooses to use us, inadequate people, ordinary people with an extraordinary message. And when we're praying for the people that are around us each and every day that don't know Christ, that have not put their faith in Jesus, it changes our outlook It changes how we wake up in the morning. It changes how we go to the grocery store. It changes how we walk down our street in our neighborhood. It changes how we walk down the hall in our dorm. Pray daily. Remember the words of Jesus, apart from me, you can do nothing. So pray daily. What's the next one? Invest. Invest weekly. What do we mean by that? We mean this, make an intentional effort to invest in a relational touch point with the people in your oikos each and every week. For example, if you notice a neighbor out watering his or her yard or flowers or shoveling their snow, depending on what season it is, instead of driving right past them and into your garage, closing the garage door, linger a little bit. Go out, chat with them, strike up a conversation. If the the door is open while you're walking down the hall of your dorm, pop your head in and say, hey, how's it going? Make a relational touch point with the people in your oikos. When you do that, you'll find that some people begin to lean into relationship with you, begin to like you and want to be your friend. (laughs) And, And that leads us to point number three, pray daily, 
Invest weekly. What's the third one? Invite. Invite monthly. What does this look like? It could look like a lot of things. Might look like inviting that coworker to join you for a lunch out of the office. It might look like um, asking them when you're out to eat with them. So tell me your story. I'd like to hear it. They might reciprocate, <laughs> and if they do, be prepared to weave the gospel into your story of what changed in your life when you began to follow Jesus. You know, if you're throwing a party or having a game night, invite the people from your oikos to join you. People often need to belong before they believe. Because what would that next appropriate step be to invite them closer into relationship with you? We have some next door neighbors and we just, our Thanksgiving plans fell through with family this year, um, travel plans. And, and so we're like, okay, we're kind of home alone for Thanksgiving, but we, we have some, some neighbors who have immigrated from India and we just texted them this week and said, what are you guys up to for Thanksgiving? We'd love to invite you to, to, to join us for a traditional Thanksgiving meal. Now, here's the catch. They're Hindu. They don't eat meat. And so we're going to have a turkeyless Thanksgiving meal. Um, I don't like turkey anyway, so it works out. Um, so that, that's what I mean by invite. Invite into deeper relationship. It could be even get to the point where you say, hey, would you want to come join um, me for a worship service. That would be an appropriate invite um, as well. Now, if, as you pray and invest and invite, I, I, I want to caution you about something, and that's this. Don't make projects out of people. Don't make projects out of people. Don't approach them with ulterior motives. <laughs> it's okay to have ultimate motives. Ultimate motives of seeing them come to see the beauty of Jesus like you do. But don't have ulterior motives. In other words, don't erase them from your oikos chart if they reject the gospel. No, continue to pray for them and love them just as you would prior to them saying, nope, I'm not about that Jesus stuff. Continue to faithfully pray for them and love them. <clears throat> Sorry, <coughs> I've got this frog in my throat today. And love them. I need to bring a water bottle up when I preach, I guess. I'm going to invite the band back up. And as they do, um, I'm going to close us in a time of prayer. And then our worship team is going to sing a song over us. While they sing, you should have a pen. You might have to share it with, with your neighbor. But you should have a pen there by your seat somewhere. We put a lot of them out there. Um, take that pen. And as they sing, would you f take some time to thoughtfully and prayerfully fill out that chart? Who are the people in your family group, in your friend group, your coworkers, your neighbors, or your dorm mates if you're in college? Who, who are the people in your oikos? Who are the 8 to 15 people that got a supernaturally and strategically placed in your life for the sake of the gospel? Fill that out as the band sings this song over us. If you finish and they're still singing, join in the singing, okay? Let me pray together for us. Father, thank you. I want to thank you for the gospel, the truth that, that Jesus died in our place on our behalf instead of us, paid the debt of sin that we owed, was buried, then rose again to conquer death. Thank you for the gospel. 
that when we believe and have faith that he was our substitute, that our sin is exchanged for his righteousness. And can we can live forever with you in restored relationship as redeemed, adopted sons and daughters. That is such good news. And it's good news that's meant to be shared. We're not meant to be gospel containers. We're meant to be conduits of this good news. We see this pattern in Scripture. As the gospel comes to us, it's meant to flow through us, God. Help us not to see our salvation as an end in itself, but as a means to an end of bringing you greater glory as we spread the message. As we join Jesus on the great adventure of his redemptive mission where we live, work, learn, and play. So Father, now as we fill out this, um, this sheet, this chart, would you remind us of the people that we come in contact with each and every week that don't know you? Help us to be faithful to pray, to invest, and to invite. Amen.